Saturday with Colm O'Mongon on RTE Radio 1. Hello again. As protests continue all over the country, close to 70 since the start of the year already, the Taoiseach Leo Varadkar said he's extremely concerned about the rise of the far right in this country, adding that anti-refugee protests are, quote, not the Irish way. He also said scenes witnessed at a number of protests in recent days and weeks are not acceptable. Well, Gardaí are on the front line and they're policing these protests and they've witnessed an increasingly hostile reaction towards them. And joining me now to discuss this is Brendan O'Connor, President of the Garda Representative. Of association. Good afternoon to you, Brendan O'Connor. Good afternoon, Tom. Uh, regardless of the motivation behind protests, is this of a different order than what we've seen at previous times of large public order operations, the, the likes of the water protests or even some of the protests during COVID? Would you would you make a distinction between what your members are seeing now? Um, I suppose I wouldn't make a distinction. The principles and, and, and what the levels of threat that our members have been exposed to. Probably there's a higher volume of them and it's, it's a more concentrated and I suppose social media has probably evolved even slightly in those few years. So we're probably seeing a new phenomena of those people actually videoing them abusing and threatening our members and then circulating them widely online. So that's, that's probably a development, but um, certainly it's, uh, public order situations that need to be policed and, and high, high numbers of protests are probably probably the most similar incident that similar circumstances was the water protest in recent memory but we have other have other isolated incidents but it's certainly it's it's the, the concentration of them and the high numbers and the sporadic nature of them springing up is presenting quite a challenge to our membership but what's in terms of the risks to your members uh, has have uh, i suppose the security planning for your policing of these protests been influenced at all by reports we see of known criminal elements among some of the protests? Well, I suppose, look, that's an operational matter and that's for, for the guard authorities to ensure that there's proper investigation and intelligence gathering and preparation. But we would be more concerned about the health and welfare of our members who are actually on the scene policing right. them. And what is the impact on, on members who are experiencing this harassment of being filmed, of being subjected to verbal abuse? What are they feeding back to you about the experience of policing some of these protests where they have taken a turn like this? Well, well, our members are very uncomfortable and um, very uneasy with, with the development and, and the, the impact is, is quite severe on their welfare. So, of course, different people have different levels of resilience, but certainly um, to be passed into the public light like that, to have personal comments about your, maybe your physical appearance, but then actually threats of violence made towards you. It's very disturbing and very threatening for our members. So, certainly it is impacting on their welfare and, and, and their sense of security when they go out there because there's, there's a sense of kind of unknown about this and, as you say, certainly there is indication that there are more sinister elements who are trying to exploit um, the situation and probably have more sinister criminal motives but those people will have to be followed up with and addressed and dealt with but for the members on the front line it's it's a very challenging environment and it's 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 some of these are springing up very, very um, without much planning, so we get very little notice to, 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 to plan in advance or to have proper safety statements or operational policing orders in place to right. prepare for them. And just, I suppose, some of the natures of some of the threats that were issued online, people, for example, talking about going through the, the Garda station, talking about running amok uh, in, in Finglas around the Garda station, there has to be presumably a commensurate level of resources deployed if those threats are being made explicitly, you, you, you can't, I suppose, you have to plan for the worst case scenario. 
No, absolutely. And I mean, so that's the nature of policing. You have to be prepared for, for any eventuality. So, you know, there is operations being put in place and there will be, as I say, significant operational planning behind the scenes that maybe the public won't have sight of to be prepared for that threat. But certainly it, 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 it's quite concerning to see those sort of threats being made and, ha- and putting the, the guards in a situation where we have to prepare for such eventualities. But right. I mean, the guards have, have a good tradition of keeping the peace. We are the guards of the peace and our members have showed extreme restraint and managed to police these protests to date without allowing them to escalate if that is the intent of some of those on the fringes of them. But for local Gardaí, if they're policing, say, they're, they're, they're policing a protest in the area they normally work in and they say for, see, for example, vulnerable young people being co-opted into some of the more sinister elements of the protest, they have to strike a balance between the rapport they have to maintain with the community and at the same time policing these protests. So how is that balance struck? Well, I suppose that is just the science and the skill set that our members have and as we have delivered across this nation for, for so long and that's probably where we are unique in the police service and that we're able to, to keep that rapport and to keep that level of contact and personal contact and not allow individuals to drive a wedge between communities that doesn't actually exist because that's one of the motives seems to be some of these people seem to be want to portray that image that there's some division between the guards and community we serve when that's simply not the case. Right. And I say... Uh, just, uh, I suppose, Gardaí who work in, in a particular area, if they come across a hostile crowd, they're probably conscious that they could be patrolling these areas in smaller numbers after the fact. Has that given rise to fears amongst your members in, in, in certain areas that they may be vulnerable to people who might be um, minded to wait until there were fewer Garda resources deployed in a particular area to follow up on these threats they've made? Well, guards would always be very conscious of their safety and carry a dynamic risk assessment under on patrol. So certainly I don't think that is a phenomenon because our members are well adept and used to policing. And as I said, it is the guards who are policing these protests are generally guards that operate in these areas on a day-to-day basis. And they have a good rapport and a good connection with people. So it is, we can identify the people who are, who are, who are intent on causing harm and causing damage. So, and we, so it's, it's very important too for the law-abiding citizens who see this and might have a perception that people are like getting away with it or because there's no immediate in, in, intervention. But the guards will follow up. We will identify these people who are involved in criminal activity and they will be brought before the courts. So to say, um, looking on it from the outside, maybe people don't have an, an understanding of the intricacies and those those scenarios that you alluded to there are exactly the reason why the guards are showing just such restraint and right. following up and not allowing good relationships over generations be compromised by a small group of people with a very sinister motivation. Before I let you go, was there any sense of a growing hostility before this that then these protests tapped into? I mentioned COVID at the outset where people would have seen uh, some disturbances during uh, lockdown protests at one point. But did your members detect hostility over the last year or so before these protests erupted in the way they have now that would have given them cause for concern in any of the communities they were policing? Well, I think the concern that that members have is is the level and the rise of assaults in general, which I don't think are connected to any organising. It is a a phenomenon in some areas and and the use of social media to record these attacks. So certainly, I suppose, things have changed in, in the way that some of these problems manifest themselves, but I don't. I don't believe there was a sense of a, an organised um, anti-establishment sort of sentiment towards the guards that was in any way organised or focused. So right. certainly, yes, 
we see an extra level of threat to our members. We see extra pressures put on us and, and the use of social media to intimidate members and perhaps their wider family. But I don't believe that there's an organised sociological change towards a more hostile right. attitude to the police in this country. So, so just to be clear, it, it's the kind of elements who have been filming themselves assaulting Gardaí heretofore and some of the organisers of this happen to be arriving at the same place at the same time and feeding off each other without any collusion between the two actors. Is that what you're saying? Well, well, of, of course, I mean, I wouldn't be privy to the exact intelligence and the investigation, but I'm just talking in the wider context. I wouldn't say that our members felt a breakdown between themselves and communities. In fact, it was quite the opposite in COVID and, and much of the research that carried out by different agencies and by the police would indicate that during COVID, actually the restraint, professionalism and the community-oriented nature of policing in Ireland actually helped to maintain those bonds and that trust between Gardaí and communities. So I don't think we're any small element, no matter how focused they are, we want to compromise our, our traditions and our values and our ethos as a police service. All right. OK, Brendan O'Connor, President of the Garda Representative Association, thanks for joining us this afternoon. Well, those protests uh, requiring a Garda presence, which we've just heard about to varying degrees, have been taking place in recent days, weeks, months indeed, at locations around Dublin, on Anger Street, East Wall and Finglas, as well as in towns like Formoy and Killarney. And many protesters have taken to the streets to complain about a lack of consultation, to raise concern about the pressures on public services or the use of facilities like hotels for asylum seekers at the possible expense of their role as local businesses in the tourism industry. But Kieran O'Connor is a senior analyst at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, which specialises in researching far-right activity. And I've been speaking to him and asked him what kind of rhetoric marks the far-right element apart from the local protesters. Local actors, local communities are focused on questions around facilities, resources, capabilities of being able to manage an influx of asylum seekers in this locality. Far-right actors, the type that we research, espouse a brand of nativism. Non-native members of a population pose a threat based on their ethnicity, based on their background. And the, the rhetoric is one that presents asylum seekers as a danger or as an invading force. I mean, we see claims of invasion or plantation. A, a threat specifically to whom? To women and children? It seems to be one of the aspects. Yeah, this claim around sexual assault and sexual violence against women or children is something that's really become central to a lot of the kind of protests in the last two weeks. Very provocative claims. What's happening in Ireland in regards to these claims actually mirrors what has happened internationally, where a lack of knowledge of perhaps cultural differences are, are taken advantage of to make uh, superficially plausible claims about migrants being a danger to women and children. Well, let's, let's hear uh, some, some tape. Barry Lenehan, um, our RT Radio 1's reporter, was at a protest in Dublin. Here's a couple of the people he spoke to. And this has nothing to do with the individuals who are in there. This is about government policy and foisting up to 600 people who they said initially that it would be women and children. Now we find out that it's not Ukrainian refugees, that it's um, asylum seekers from God knows where. Up to a dozen people I asked uh, didn't want to speak to me, saying that we wouldn't put across the facts. But this woman, she did speak to me. We're still coming together as an Irish group, you know, men for Ireland all over. Unvetted men. We're terrified, really, especially the women. And I've never seen it this bad. The Irish government... She sold us out to the EU at the end of the day, do you know what I mean? Why on earth is there hundreds of men coming in and they're doing it late at night? They should be over there fighting for their own country. Women and children are are living in that hotel as well, we we are led to believe. There's not many of them. Our own Irish got thrown out before these all came in. 
it's heartbreaking for Ireland, it really is, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm out for helping anybody at the end of the day, but not grown men in their 20s and 40s that look military, do you know what I mean? It's just ridiculous. I'm not even fleeing from war, just people coming over for here, albino. That's a peaceful country. Why are they running out there? Why are they coming from America as well, from Georgia and all? They're not fleeing war zones. And that was a couple of protester voices that uh, Barry Lenehan gathered. Kieran, how much of that is concerning? Well, it's particularly interesting to hear that phrase, military-aged males, because these are the kinds of phrases and terminology that have been espoused by some of the leading uh, far-right actors around asylum seekers for a couple of months now. And these are not meaningless terms. So to see it kind of filtering down to someone on the street who's out protesting against that is notable in itself. And it's a clear reference to the kind of wider far-right great replacement conspiracy theory and it creates a pretext for uh, intimidation, hate or even violence. The online world in which so much of this stuff is circulating, it's creating such a quick feedback loop where you have unverifiable information or really serious claims of criminality that are moving at light speed. So a rumour can turn to incitement and then to violence in a very short space of time. And one piece of violence uh, can lead to another. It really is a a febrile information environment. Um, And all platforms, not just one, uh, form a part of a patchwork at the moment that is leading people to be incited towards hostility. And are there self-reinforcing things within the social media platforms, algorithms that draw people to more of this, or has that in any way been uh, dealt with? No, uh, I think every platform is playing a role within this. There might be spaces like Telegram where you see some of the kind of most explicit language but then a platform like Facebook it offers scale for these kinds of protests you know a, a poster pro, uh, promoting a protest can be shared rapidly and can get uh, people out to protest I mean Facebook's own policies on on hate speech against refugees and asylum seekers it allows for a discussion of immigration policies but not of severe attacks so there's a lot of space in which you can get some very threatening uh, potentially insightful kinds of content. We heard in Barry's tape there is a lack of trust in the media, there's a lack of trust in institutions, there's a lack of trust in elected representatives. So through what channels are people best communicated with in order to counteract that? When it comes to trying to to debunk or or kind of criticise or or critique the kind of false misleading claims, part of the problem there is that it takes 10 times longer to debunk one false claim than it receives 10 times less engagement. Uh, Talking about potential solutions, what we really need is actual leadership, a community-led initiative that bring together trustworthy individuals from local communities so that those people who are protesting feel they're being listened to or that their concerns are having some weight. And we also must ask others, people who, who see maybe friends or family sharing this stuff, to call out the nonsense and challenge it as well. People have a responsibility here too. But ultimately, it must come back to the, the leaders in local communities and in national government. Just finally then, to what extent was COVID a dry run for this? And another reason for the increasing hostility towards asylum seekers at the moment lies in I suppose, what we would call the COVID effect. Uh, online movements and communities that did not have much overlap before the pandemic have now coalesced and, and they're bound by an embrace of this kind of conspiratorial worldview that the state is out against them, that the media is out against them. And they've developed and they've evolved into 
melting pots of wild alternative theories for everything. And we've heard politicians like Paul Murphy from People Before Profit voicing concern. He, he was kicked himself by demonstrators outside the doll that somebody is going to get killed or seriously hurt mm-hmm. if, if something isn't done urgently to address this. The danger and the threat of that is uh, very real. The, the feedback loop, the speed at which claims are inciting people to take action or, or go for violence against uh, asylum seekers, it's very quick right now. And there is a real danger that uh, perhaps asylum seekers or even uh, centres for asylum seekers may become targets for, for, for even more violence. All right, so that was Kieran O'Connor from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue and still with me in studio are Jennifer Carl McNeil, the Minister of State for Financial Services and uh, Fine Gael TD for Dunleary, Ivana Bacic, the Labour Leader and TD for Dublin Bay South and Pather Tobin, Ainthu Leader and TD for Meath West. I suppose, can I just get an opinion from all of you on your experience of going around the doorsteps and canvassing and being out in your community have you noticed, for to you first, Padre Tobin, a, a shift at all, even in the nature of questions you're being asked about matching resources with communities or any of the more extreme ideas taking hold? Yeah, <clears throat> most of the, the information that we're getting back is the general concern that, you know, is widespread uh, in society. The concern that people want to help, they want to do the right thing, they want to be the good Samaritan in these situations. Uh, but they're angry around the lack of consultation, for example. They feel that... Uh, you know, the people are not being told what's happening in their own communities. And that's creating a big di- difficulty. You know, I've seen a, a, a letter from Anne Rabbit, um, which where she's, re- she's requested from the department to tell her will a particular hotel in Loch Ray be used um, for, for migrants. It says absolutely not. She goes back to her constituents and says absolutely not. And then two days later, it's used for exactly that particular issue. So we need to get, a, we need to start treating citizens like adults, start to be able to speak to communities, uh, start to listen to the concerns around this. In working class communities, I have come across the issue of the community dividend issue. So, you know, that's where working class communities feel in many ways big difficulties around housing, doctors, uh, school places, transport, for example. And they feel they're already under fierce pressure there. Um, they feel they've been asked to take this um, new group of people in but they don't get the community dividends to be able to make sure that the services are being delivered to them. And, and, and that's a difficulty as right. well. So in, in, all of those issues are potentially ones that could be addressed through, you know, communication and possibly the provision of resources. Mm. But on some of the other issues, before I move on to the other panel members, have any of those kind of things been raised? The sort of grand no. conspiracy ideas? No, I have seen on social media. And one of the, mm. most, the har- most horrible things you see sometimes is this kind of ethno-nationalist um, stuff that's being spread around social right. media, which basically means that you're not Irish unless you're of Irish extraction and heritage. You know what I mean? That we're not all equal citizens, etc. And some tiny marginal political parties express that view. That's right. absolutely apparent up- and it's wrong. But no obviously. hostility directed towards you personally. As but you, no, no. Okay. Uh, all right. Ivana Bacic, what about you? What are you hearing on the doorsteps? Any of your constituents raising concerns either about resources or mirroring any of these views? Uh, well, first of all, you know, just to acknowledge the extraordinary welcome in communities across the country, in my own constituency and across the country, to uh, for um, groups coming here seeking refuge for individuals and families who who fleeing war and hardship and uh, persecution and, and huge community supports and huge community mobilisation to support and to show solidarity. So that's the first thing to say. That's the overwhelming response. However, there is a frustration uh, at the lack of information from government, and there is a sense, and I've experienced this directly, that. 
that there is a small number of far-right group individuals who are exploiting the information vacuum to stir up fear and distrust among communities. So, How do you mean when you say you've experienced it well, directly? Well, you know, we had a public meeting, in, in uh, a Labour meeting in, in Drogheda on, on Monday night where there was a small number of people who, who sought to, you know, disrupt it and who were using the sort of language we've just heard, anti-refugee sentiment and so on. Now, you know, we, we continued the meeting and we, and we faced them down. I then on, on Tuesday went in my own constituency to meet some people protesting. You're, the pre, uh, Brendan O'Connor referred to a protest on Anger Street. And I met with the local people there and uh, and heard from them as to their uh, the issues that they were raising with me. And there is a concern there about lack of resources, lack of amenities in the community and about an information, about an information issue. Now, I want to resolve that because, you know, I think it's very important that we are clear that we are not that with, with communities, that we need to call on government to ensure the resources are put in place and we need to ensure a clear information channel for us as public representatives who want to show support and solidarity for the huge efforts across the right. country to okay. house refugees. So I've called on government to appoint a minister, a minister with specifically with responsibility for housing of refugees of, of new communities. We're seeing Minister Roderick O'Gorman simply not getting sufficient support okay. from it, other it, government at the departments. At expense of this. what other ministerial portfolio? Well, let's ha- let's have a junior. You know, I was we welcomed minister, junior minister Joe O'Brien, but we need to see a effort okay. style response to this. We need to see the Taoiseach stepping up and a big public information campaign. The reason why in Ireland I, come, we saw I, strong I, levels I, I, of support for I, I, vaccination I, I, was because of that public information I'll come campaign. back to Jennifer Carl McNeil. First of all, your experience as a constituency politician on, on, on this. Have you detected any either personal hostility towards this or people asking you about ideas that maybe you've found suspicious or disturbing? Yeah, I, there's, there's, there has been one actually that I've picked up repeatedly even within the same estate with the same profile and it's clear to me from what was being suggested that the people, there's no way they thought of it independently. They both saw the same thing on Facebook that morning and raised it with me. You know, it was just too unusual, too out there and too unlike what people tend to say on the doorstep of a Friday morning. And I thought that was really, I thought that was really strange, to be honest with you. And I could say, I I knew what it was. It was basically Facebook information reaching two people of a similar profile in a similar geographic area. So I definitely see that. And the other thing I think is interesting is, and it's irrespective um, uh, of the type of community, you know, where people live, they just want more information about who's coming. And so, for example, I was saying, well, you know, we've got this number of people who've come from Ukraine. Uh, A third of them are children. 15,000 children are in school. That's 92% of the kids that are here. 12,000 of the Ukrainian people that have come here are actually working. They're in employment. And I think some of that information, people think of refugees or they think of asylum seekers as people, other other people. They forget there's so many children. They forget there's people trying to work, people wanting to work, forget there's people in school. They sometimes forget as well, I think, over time that there is a, a war, you know, there's a huge problem in Afghanistan, that there are huge human rights abuses in Iran and that people are fleeing all sorts of different circumstances. But when you hear language like real refugee, which actually Patter used yesterday on radio, real mm. refugee, I thought it was most unusual. When you hear that well, kind of language, you start to create division between people. Well, I'm explaining for it. There's a law, yeah. Jennifer, right? Yes, and, there is a law. Because I find it wrong when people start to slur around this conversation. There is a law which has an application process and it determines whether a person fits within the application process or not. The person who fits within the applica- application process is a real asylum seeker and the person who doesn't isn't uh, in, 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 the, in, in the law. And well, would, you, would you not make the distinction? That, so, so that's that, would important. Would you not make the distinction, Father, to be in yes. that? 
when somebody is an asylum seeker, it is not until the point that they're, exactly. that they're seeking Precisely. of asylum has been adjudicated on. Yeah. That and they it's are, not for Padder to adjudicate on they are either real or not. Yes. Well, it's, that, that's it where it's adjudicated. That's, that's yes. where it's it's not for Padder re- to adjudicate. Me, they're either a refugee or they're not, but uh, seeking asylum is a process. It is a process. And the point that I was making there was that right now there are 5,000 people waiting three years to have that process carried out. There's one person in this country waiting 14 years for their application to be to be processed. And this is wrong, in, in fairness to the asylum seekers. And it's also wrong because what it's doing at the moment is creating massive pressure and accommodation currently um, that, that shouldn't be there. And that's the point I was saying. And we have to we have to be we have to use some common sense here as well. There will be people who come to this country um, who are, um, let's say, economic migrants who will use the process for economic migrant purposes and the system needs to be able to right. identify okay. those. Look, I think you know, Jennifer's quite right about the need for information, but this is a responsibility for government to ensure that there is a, a clear channel of information and indeed a public information campaign to allay the sort of fears and concerns that are being, are being stoked by... But a public a information campaign, can it really compete with viral social media if people don't trust the message from politicians or if they don't trust it from some of the larger media organisations a public information campaign won't reach those darker sinister elements that are causing the problems as opposed to people who are just taking part in what you were talking about, well, community first, protests. Yes, and first, and we do need to see government taking stronger action also against social media companies. Let's see Facebook being brought in by the Taoiseach to account for why their moderators are not picking up on the sort of uh, on the sort of hate speech that they are supposed to be picking up on. And I think also, Cullum, you know, we did see during COVID those sort of social media uh, fears and, and disinformation being countered very effectively, in fact, right. by a widespread just, public information campaign. Now, can I say finally, you know, what's characterising most people's response in Ireland is a generosity, right, a well, yimbyism, no, where people you, you do have, want you to, have made where that people point. do want Jennifer to see McNeil, uh, a proper accommodation offers being made. Figures supplied to um, Jack Horgan Jones in the Irish Times today is looking at, you know, uh, I think it's a, a, sub, a cabinet subcommittee document looking at the numbers coming in. Um, a 330% increase in the number of international protection uh, applicants coming to Ireland in 2022, but a projected shortfall that could be uh, in five figures by the end of this year. We've seen a plea going out from ministers for the use of sports halls, all sorts of facilities. Isn't that part of the problem that in using these facilities, we're back into the zero-sum game between communities and those seeking international protection and maybe there are other solutions that need to be looked at. Every solution needs to be looked at, including what has started this week, which is the building of modular homes, of 500 modular homes, the first phase of that. But every solution What's needs What's taking to, so long yeah. just on that specific oh, point? Because school, 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 for October. Sh- sh- just wait a second. School principals seem to get them in over the summer. We've seen, you know, uh, situations where the defence forces working overseas can, can build a camp for a thousand people with, with, within the course of a, of a month. I think you'll, Why see, is there I a think drag you'll see them here? very, very quickly. The first is identifying sites. If you look at the local the sites that came back I don't recall too many sites coming back that were housing for all sites. You know what I mean? Local authorities have a responsibility to provide sites that actually are suitable sites for housing. Some of the sites that came back were unbelievably ridiculous. But the, but so the modular housing is built. But can I? But the reason that people are looking for that, I can see Padre trying to jump in, but just let me finish for a second. The, the reason that we need every single bit of accommodation that's possible to be able to meet 
the, the, the needs that are going to come from an escalated war in Ukraine. It is getting worse, not better. The numbers of people are going to continue to be very significant. We need every measure. We have never had to deal with an influx of people like this in Ireland. It's happening right across Europe, but this is the first time Ireland right. has really and had to meet are, this challenge. Are you, are you every, confident can they can suggest, be accommodated? I, I am confident that we need every piece of accommodation that we can to meet to try to meet that need. All but right, you know, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum okay, game. For, see, it's, for very briefly, well, one of the problems as well is, is the competency in the government in relation to this. The government uh, identified 500 buildings last March. 10 of those were in use in November. They bought 34 buildings for this. Um, there's only one of those in use. 85% of the people who personally pledged their own homes a uh, prov- provision of accommodation for uh, refugees were never uh, activated in any ways. People uh, it, it can't understand why the, the government are so slow in doing the simple okay. things right. And, and, why, the, and why there's such a lack of support for Minister O'Gorman's department. I mean, that is clearly evident from the letters we saw going out this week to other government departments asking them to step up. There needs to be a much clearer sense of coordination across government, both on the information issue and on the provision of accommodation and related services. And indeed, let's see an EU-wide community fund provided to support right. integration. Well, we do have a community fund. We do, have, hugely we do have a community fund and we, there is money right across Europe specifically for right. Ireland and other countries for this but there okay. is a community fund of 50 million euros right. and, 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 to develop facilities locally. Okay. There point, are people point, in pledged 6,000 euros. Point, okay, point, point made. We have, we have sure. another topic to discuss after this. Saturday with Conor Mungon on RTE Radio 1.